turn with me to Isaiah 34. That's our end destination this evening. But we're going to start in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 61. Before I forget, thank you to everyone who showed up last Thursday for our back-to-back-to-back prophecy studies. If you were half as tired as, as I was, it was a long evening. But it was a better evening um, because of those who made it out. So thank you. And I sent links to the videos um, through Simple Church yesterday. Yesterday? One of the days that ends with why. Um, if you don't have that in your email, check your junk folder or maybe you're not in Simple Church. Regardless, I can get you those links. We did uh, an hour on the 70th week of Daniel. We did two hours on the rapture. But if you were here, you remember that as a part of that mega study, we went to Isaiah 61 and we went there to make a point about Jesus and his ministry. Because Jesus began his public ministry reading from Isaiah 61. I, I, I say he began. The first thing that he did, sort of the, the inauguration of his public ministry, is he was baptized. He was baptized in water by John the Baptist, and he was also at the same time baptized by God the Holy Spirit. That's in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 4, immediately after that, he's led out into the wilderness uh, by Satan and tempted for 40 days. The next thing after that is he returns, he goes to the temple, he opens the scroll, he finds Isaiah 61, and if you've made your way there, then you're ahead of me. But he opens the scroll of Isaiah to chapter 61, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me. Anointed you to do what, Jesus? To preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And he closed the scroll and he said this day, these words are fulfilled in your hearing, and they promptly tried to throw him off of cliff. Except some of you are saying, wait, wait, wait. He didn't read all of that, Patrick, and you're right. He stopped at a comma. He stopped at the acceptable year of our Lord. And we've been living in that comma for the last 2,000 years. We've been living in an interval that we call the church age or the age of grace. The day of vengeance of our God has not yet come. Flip now to Isaiah 34, because tonight we're going to read about when that last part of Isaiah 61-2 arrives, when Jesus moves on from that comma, when God finishes the verse. When the day of vengeance arrives. Whose vengeance? God's vengeance. The day of vengeance of our God. What is that all about? We don't have to wait long to find out. Come near, you nations, to hear. Isaiah 34, 1. And heed, you, you people. Pay attention. Let the earth hear and all that is in it. Everyone listen up. The world and all the things that come forth from it. Why are we paying attention? 
For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. Indignation, fury. We're talking about God's wrath. And we're actually going to talk more about it this weekend. This is one of those weeks where what we're doing on Wednesday and what we're doing on Sunday supernaturally lines up a little bit. God's wrath, his holy anger, his justice, his righteous judgment will be poured out on the nations of the world. Which nations? All of the nations. Because this is speaking of a future time when all the nations of the world are united under the rule of a coming world leader we call Antichrist. United under Antichrist, united against Israel, united against the God of Israel. What happens when you go against Israel? God says, I'll bless those who bless Israel, I'll curse those who curse Israel. What happens when you go against the apple of God's eye? What happens when you oppose not just God's people, but the God of his people? Sooner or later, what happens is that God responds with divine fury against those who join together to stand against him. Still verse 2 We'll back up. The indignation of the Lord is against all nations, his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. Isaiah switches to the prophetic past tense here. We're accustomed to seeing this in Isaiah and other prophetic scripture where God speaks of something that hasn't happened yet as if it is done. There isn't any question, it's going to happen. Take my word for it, God says. I promise you, this is going to happen. I can see it because God's outside of time. What is he describing here? He's describing his judgment. What's the context What's the occasion for his judgment? When does that happen? Second coming. Second coming. It's part of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord begins with the tribulation, begins with Israel signing a treaty with that world leader that we call Antichrist. Day of the Lord continues through the tribulation, continues through the second coming, the sheep and goats judgments of the millennial kingdom. We're here smack dab in the middle of it. And specifically, we're at the seven-year mark. We're at the end of the tribulation where Jesus is returning. This is the second coming of Jesus, Jesus coming in judgment. If you have any doubt, we can lateral over to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So that sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? And clearly that's the day of the Lord's return. We could also lateral to Revelation 19. We did it last week, but we'll do it again. Revelation 19, we'll just read a couple verses. I saw the beast, 
Revelation 19, verse 19, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him, capital H, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, with him the false prophets who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with a brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword that proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Same language, same picture, same gore, same horror, same judgment. We could also just make life easy on ourselves back to Isaiah 34. We could just look down to verse 8 and read, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense, payback for the cause of Zion. Let's put this in context. Again, this will be review for those of you who are here on Thursday. But Jesus' first coming inaugurated what we read in Isaiah 61, the acceptable year of the Lord. Not a year like a 365-day year. Year, an age, a season. The time, the era of God's grace poured out. Why do we call it a year? Not, not, not sure. Some scholars suspect, is there a connection to the year of Jubilee? Yeah, maybe that's the reference. The year of Jubilee, every 49th year on the Jewish calendar, when slaves would be set free, where property would be restored to its original owners, where debts would be wiped out. That's the kind of thing that we think about when we think about the age of grace. Slaves set free, our debt forgiven, our debt wiped out, and you and I returned to our original owner, our creator. But that age of grace, the year, acceptable year of the Lord, has an end. Romans 11.22 tells us what marks the end when the number of Gentiles has come in, when everyone who is going to be saved during the age of grace has been saved. The Father says to the Son, go get your bride. And of course, we call that the rapture of the church. Sometime after that, the seven-year, the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation begins. It begins with a treaty, but almost immediately, that which can be shaken begins to shake as God's judgment with progressively increasing severity starts to pour out on the earth. With what purpose? Daniel 9.24 outlines six purposes God has for the tribulation. First and foremost, number one on God's list is to chastise Israel to repentance. He's not punishing Israel for the sake of Israel. He's punishing Israel with a purpose. He's punishing Israel like we punish children, to teach them, to instruct them. And number one purpose that God has for the tribulation is to convince Israel of her need for God and to convince Israel that the way to God, the only way to God, is through Jesus, the same Jesus that she handed over to be crucified. Once that purpose is accomplished, once the remnant of Israel that hasn't been slain and hasn't sworn allegiance to Antichrist repents, and asks Jesus to return, he does. And at that point, the second 
if, if we're to order this, the objectives that God has for the tribulation, the second one kicks into high gear, judging the nations for their rebellion, judging them dramatically, judging them horrifically. Matthew 12, 30, Jesus said, anyone who's not for me is against me. The universe is binary, we say sometimes. There's God and there's not God. There's accepting Jesus and aligning our lives with him, choosing to follow him, accepting forgiveness from him. There's choosing Jesus and there's everything else because Satan owns the fence. If you choose not to decide, you've made a choice, said Getty Lee, and he was right. In the age of grace, we can lose sight of the dichotomy of the universe. We can lose sight of the fact that there's only two choices. Because in this age of grace, we see first and foremost God's long-suffering. God has many attributes. Sometimes we, we compare the attributes of God to the facets of a gem. God has many attributes. During the age of grace, the facet that's turned toward us, the facet that shines most brightly, is God's patience. That's what's on display. That's one of the things that we experience most dramatically. He's willing that none shall perish and that all would come to repentance. And the age of grace is all about extending that invitation to people who are still actively rebelling against him. But that season cannot go on forever. That facet, that aspect of God's character, God's person, cannot be the only one made manifest to humanity. If, if, if that goes on too long, it would eclipse God's other facets, his other attributes, justice, holiness, wrath. If God doesn't punish sin, or if he delays punishing sin inevitably, which amounts to the same thing, well, then he's not God. Then he's not who he is anymore. He's denying himself. If God doesn't treat sin the way tr sin needs to be treated, then God is not being pure. He's not being holy. He's not being righteous. Matthew 23, 39, Jesus says at the end of his first coming, shortly before the crucifixion, he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We, we toss that around, we remember that. We don't always remember where that comes from. That comes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is the psalm in which we read the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. And he goes on to say, <clears throat> Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he's given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endures forever. 
How many different contemporary Christian songs did you hear in that short passage? Jesus says, you won't see me again until you say, I am who I said I was. Until you repent of not recognizing me, not acknowledging me. Until you confess your sin before me and call upon my name for forgiveness. But when you do, buckle up. (laughs) Because when you do, I will return, I promise to. I said, I won't return until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But when you do, I will. And I will wreak vengeance upon your enemies because your enemies are my enemies. He returns dramatically. He returns to wreak destruction on earth at the same time Back to chapter 34 of Isaiah. The heavens are also shaken. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, verse 4, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, as fruit falling from a fig tree. Why does that make sense? Why are heavens shaken? Because the fall is not just a human thing. Humanity fell but we initiated something that extends beyond ourselves. When we fell, when humanity fell, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we crashed the universe. We broke creation, including the heavens. Understand heavens is is here in context, is not heaven where God resides. It's the heavens. It's the sky where the birds fly. It's the sky where the stars orbit. And Job 15.15 says, yeah, the heavens are corrupted. So when Jesus returns on a recovery mission, on a restoration mission, on a renovation project, part of what he returns to do is not only reverse the curse on earth, but in the heavens as well. Now, some of you who have studied prophecy in depth, you're scratching your head at verse 4, and you're saying, wait a minute, that sounds like the end of the end. That doesn't sound like Revelation 19 when Jesus returns. That sounds like Revelation 21. That sounds like Hebrews 1 and Psalm 102 and 2 Peter 3 when this whole creation is wound up and replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. I don't disagree. So how do we explain the reference to it here in what sounds like a second coming passage? There's a couple ways people get there. The first is, well, perhaps it's fulfilled spiritually before it's fulfilled literally. Perhaps Jesus begins to shake that which can be shaken in the heavens before he returns to the earth. Okay, maybe. But we see that during the tribulation, not at the end, not where he returns. So maybe, but, but that, that doesn't, to me, that's not completely satisfying. Others will say, well, maybe there's a partial fulfillment at Jesus' return. Maybe the heavens are shaken a little bit before they're shaken epically after the millennium. I could, I could, I could get behind that. Partial fulfillment, complete fulfillment, that's certainly something we see in Scripture. But I think the actual explanation is probably simpler. I think that we have here an encapsulation of the return of Christ and the continuation of that return through the millennium, concluding with the destruction of this creation and the replacement of it by the new heaven and the new earth. 
because that's also a very Hebrew way of thinking and writing and, and expressing an idea. Here's the beginning, here's the end, and now let's get more into the detail. So I'm, I'm inclined in that direction. Verse 3 speaks of, of the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Verse 4 speaks of the end of the return of Christ, if you will, at the end of the millennium. Disagree with me? We're still friends. Either way, Jesus returns. Either way, the results are horrific. Verse 5 is on this page. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It's made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of a ram. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, underline Basra, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom, underline Edom. The wild oxen shall come down with them, and the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust saturated with fatness. For it's the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Here's where things get interesting. I say that like they haven't been interesting already. Edom. I said underline that. Why? Because what is God pointing at here? Most commentators will tell you, verse 6, that Edom is a placeholder. That Edom is a representative of the nations. We see that in Scripture sometimes. We've talked about this. When people talk about Washington, they're talking about all of the U.S. government. Sometimes they're talking about the entire United States. We talk about what's going on in Moscow by which we mean the government of Russia, and by extension, its, its machinations in, in Ukraine. So is, is Edom just a shorthand way of speaking of all of the nations, all of the nations that aren't Israel, in other words? Well, that, that could make a certain amount of sense, because where else do we see Edom used that way? In Malachi, we read God say, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Jacob later is known by another name, Israel, and the land that Esau settles is Edom. So is this just a poetic way of saying, God speaking of all the nations altogether and, and personifying them in the name of one nation? Paul does that. When we get to Romans 9 verse 13, Paul is going to speak of Jesus' friends who are reconciled to him and his enemies who have not chosen him, who have rejected him. And he's going to use the same language, Israel and Esau. So it is perfectly reasonable, I think, that God would use Edom that way here again. But I don't think that's what he's doing. It's reasonable. Where I trip is Basra. And I say I like I thought of this. No, I, I, I side with those commentators who say, but what about Basra, which is the capital of, of Edom? Why that detail? I mean, this is, this is, this is, that, that represents a, a great deal of commitment to a metaphor. And why does God need that metaphor? Because he's already used Babylon as a placeholder for all of the nations. So if he wanted a place name to perform that function, he already has one. He's already used one. Why introduce another one? 
I don't think it's a metaphor. I might be wrong. But we said last week that the remnant of Israel isn't in Jerusalem as this is unfolding. And I said that because I don't think they will be. I said that because I think the Bible tells us they won't be. And we, we dipped our toe in those waters last week. We looked at Matthew 24, 16, that talks about the remnant of Israel fleeing the, the, from, from Judea to the mountains. We talked about Revelation 12, that speaks of the woman, which we understand to be Israel, fleeing into the wilderness. And we looked at Isaiah 33, because that's the chapter that we were in. And we read in Isaiah 33, 16, he will dwell on high, his place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. And we said, okay, wilderness, mountains, on high, where could that be? Daniel chapter 11 gives us an interesting clue. Daniel 11:41. you don't have to turn there, tells us that three nations will be exempt from Antichrist's dominion. Antichrist essentially consolidates a worldwide empire except for Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Now, prophecy uses ancient place names. We don't see modern place names like the United States in prophecy. Why? Because names and boundaries are fluid. They change constantly throughout history. We might be about to see a change in the borders of Ukraine and Russia. If someone were to talk about the boundaries of the United States, you'd have to ask them the current boundaries, the boundaries when we were 13 colonies, the boundaries after the Louisiana Purchase, the boundaries after the war with Mexico, the boundaries after we acquired Alaska and Hawaii. The point is, God reaches back to ancient boundaries that, that, that we know, that we recognize, that can't change because they're, they're historical. But if we were to bring them in 21st century parlance, Edom, Moab, and Ammon are all contained in what we would call Jordan. So if Jordan isn't under the dominion of Antichrist, that would be a logical place for the remnant of Israel to flee to. I'm saying the remnant of Israel, I'm not convinced, are they believers in Jesus Christ before they flee, or do they come to Christ after they flee? I, could, I, I don't know what I think. I'm still, I'm still studying that. But we know that there's a remnant, and I believe it makes sense if you're fleeing from Antichrist, who's coming after you, and who's sending his armies for you in Jerusalem, where might you go for refuge? Some place that Antichrist does not have his thumb on the way that he has his thumb on the rest of the world. Jordan has mountains. And jo Jordan has mountains <clears throat> close to Basra. And in Micah chapter 2, verse 12, we read, I will surely assemble you all of you, O Jacob, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. Basra means sheepfold. There are several towns and cities near Basra. The most likely candidate, though, I think, is Petra. Why? 
Petra, the rock city of Petra, the way that you enter it is through a mile-long passageway, only carved into rock, only wide enough for two or three people to walk side by side. And once you get in, you're in a bowl or a basin that's surrounded by high cliffs. What does that sound like? It actually sounds like a sheepfold. Sheepfolds in Jesus' day and in Isaiah's day would have a long shoot that would make it easy for the shepherd to count the sheep. Okay, do I have all of them? Are they they still with me? One, two, three, six. But then an open space for them to move around, surrounded by high walls or fencing, so that they don't escape and so the predators don't enter in. Took a little bouncing around. But if you take all of that together, I, I think it's a reasonable case that the remnant of Israel at the time of Jesus' return is hunkered down in Petra. And that's actually not particularly controversial. It's not universally accepted. But you don't have to look hard for, for commentators and pastors to say, yeah, I think that too. Here's where we're going to get a little bit more speculative. Here's where you're going to find a lot of people who think that Patrick is out to lunch. Assume, assume for a moment that, that that remnant is in Petra, that despite the attack on Jerusalem that we know happens, Antichrist armies do go against Jerusalem. If the remnant is in Petra, and Satan knows the remnant is in Petra because he's read Scripture, and Satan is, is empowering Antichrist, may or may not be indwelling him, but he's certainly empowering him, wouldn't it make sense for at least some contingent of Antichrist armies to invade Jordan at this point and to assault Petra? Because the believing remnant of Israel and the God of Israel is very much the object of Antichrist's fury. Wouldn't it make sense for the horror that we're reading about and the vengeance that Isaiah 34 is describing to be taking place in Basra, in, in, in the area near Petra, in Edom. Is there anything in Scripture to suggest that, Patrick, or are you just being random? What about verse 6? The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It's made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lamb and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Okay, yeah, but you already said that. Do you have anything else? I don't want to build a whole idea. I don't want to build a whole, a whole doctrine here on one verse. Yeah. Habakkuk 3.3. Habakkuk 3.3. Which is also, if you, if you read it on your own, Habakkuk 3 is clearly a second coming passage. And we read in Chapter 3, verse 3, God came from Taman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand. There, was power, there his power was hidden before him when pestilence and fever followed at his feet. The Holy One came from Taman, from Mount Paran. Okay, where are those places? They're near Basra. They're in the same mountain range as Mount Sair. They're within, within a, a day's walk of Petra. Okay, so you've got 
Isaiah 34, 6, you've got Habakkuk 3, 3. You got anything else? Sure. Go to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. This is a back and forth. Isaiah talks first, and he asks, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? Isaiah is looking out from the perspective of Jerusalem. He's looking towards Edom. There's someone walking toward him. Who is it? He can't quite make it out at first, but he's great and he's glorious. And he's got these bright red clothes. Who is it? This is the answer. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. The person Isaiah is seeing and, and, and is asking, who is this? The person says, yeah, it's me. The one who speaks in righteousness. The one who's mighty to save. Isaiah verse 2. Okay, but why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? That's the question. Verse 3. I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I've stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Jesus is walking from Edom towards Jerusalem, dripping with blood in the day of vengeance. I believe that Jesus returns first to Edom, deals with the armies that are directly and immediately threatening the believing remnant who cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then heads to Jerusalem for phase two of the operation. Patrick, you're getting out on the skinny branches. Maybe, but Zechariah 12, 7, the Lord will save the tents of Judah first. The tents, the temporary dwelling places. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah, believing Judah, observant Judah. It's not a conventional understanding of the second coming. Lots of people want to point at Zechariah and say, but it says here that he comes back to the Mount of Olives and he ascended from the Mount of Olives and it says that he's going to come back in the same manner in which he departed. I have no doubt that Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives. I do not see where it says that he comes back there first. It's an interpretation Disagree, we're still friends. Want to dig into this more? Arnold Fruchtenbaum is your guy. Because I'm leaning hard on his, his work this evening. Um, if you want to dig deeper into this also, look at Jeremiah 49 on your own. Read Jeremiah 49, especially verses 12 to 22. And I think that the interpretation that I just offered will bring a lot of sense to that passage. Time's getting away from us, so, so we won't do it together, but for, for, for your own digging. Having done that, now let's go back and finish our chapter, and we'll wrap up for tonight. 
chapter 34, <clears throat> verse 9. What's going to happen to Edom when Jesus returns? Its stream shall be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched day or night. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Pause. We read a parallel, not a parallel passage. We read an analogous passage back in Isaiah 12 and 13, speaking in very much the same terms about Babylon. And we noticed when we read that, forever doesn't mean forever and ever and ever, amen. It means forever until the end of the age forever until we come to the conclusion of that season. And that's what it means here as well. Edom is going to be a smoking fire pit through the millennial kingdom, the end of that dispensation. It shall not be quenched day or night. We read that. But the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. We're guessing at the animal names here. The Hebrew's not clear. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. It may or may not be owl and raven, but we know that birds in Scripture point to evil. Yep. He shall stretch over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there, and all its princes shall be nothing. And thorns shall come up in its palaces. Thorns point us to the curse, Genesis 3. Nettles and brambles in its fortresses. It shall become a habitation of jackals, a courtyard for ostriches. The wild beasts of the desert shall meet with the jackals, and the wild goat shall bleat to its companion. Also there the night creature shall find rest and find for herself a place of rest. There the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under her shadow. There also hawks shall be gathered, birds again, everyone with her mate. And here's the thing. We said this back in Isaiah 12 and 13. This can't both be true. If this is a place of, of nonstop burning throughout the millennial kingdom for a thousand years, ostriches and jackals aren't going to live there. That's not compatible with animal life. Unless my ostriches and jackals were pointing at something demonic. And certainly the snake in the, the close of that passage lends some credence to, to that thought. That this is a dominion, this is a, a domain for, for demonic creatures. They're, they're uh, restricted to that area. Why would God allow that? Why not revive that, restore that along with the rest of creation? Perhaps as a reminder? Because remember what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. Satan is let out of the bottomless pit. His, his chains are taken off. His chains are removed by God. And humanity once again rebels. Why? Why did God do that? To demonstrate that our rebelliousness doesn't come from our environment. We're not the product of our upbringing exclusively. We're not victims of circumstances. We have a sin nature. And given the opportunity, even with Jesus personally, physically ruling and reigning, we will choose to rebel against God. And perhaps Babylon and Edom are left in ashes as a reminder, as one more excuse removed Oh, you don't really mean that if, if we sin against you, there'll be judgment. Yeah, I do. This is what happened the last time. I, 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 I peeled the corner back on my wrath. Maybe it's a visible, tangible uh, Ebenezer memorial.
But what's our takeaway from all of this? Verse 16 and 17 as we wrap up. Search from the book of the Lord and read, not one of these shall fail. No prophecy shall fail. Not one shall lack her mate. There's the prophecy and there's the fulfillment. For my mouth has commanded it and his spirit has gathered them. He's cast the lot for them and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation they shall dwell in it. Every prophecy that God has for Israel will be fulfilled. Every prophecy that God has for you and I will be fulfilled. Every prophecy that God has for the nations shall be fulfilled. God has a plan. Verse 16 and 17, God's plan is unfolding and no one and nothing will keep him from bringing it to fruition. Not armies of humans, not armies under Satan, not Satan himself. No one can stand against the Lord our God. And just as Edom will for a thousand years be a reminder at any given point in time, we're either cooperating with that plan or opposing that plan. Passages like this are a reminder at any given point in time. We're either surrendering, yielding to God's plans and purposes or we're rebelling against them. There is no middle ground. We live in an age of grace. Praise Jesus. We live in a time where God's forgiveness and mercy and second chances are obvious to us. That's the facet of God facing toward us. And when we think of God, that's what we think of. Merciful God who came for us, who laid his life down, who traded places with us. But that is not all that God is. He is also holy. He is also righteous. And his holiness and his righteousness will be made manifest in his time. We must not get sloppy or complacent in our thinking. We have been made righteous in Christ. We who have accepted his death on the cross as payment for our sins. We said on Sunday, what does that entail? We're both cleansed and filled. We're forgiven and blessed. Our sins are wiped away and we're made righteous. Mercy, we don't get what we deserve. Grace, we get what we don't deserve. We're made righteous in Christ. That does not remove our responsibility to choose righteousness. The fact that God looks at us and he says, oh, you're good, you're good like my son Jesus is good, does not remove our responsibility to do good. The fact that God's plans will unfold does not remove our opportunity and our privilege to cooperate with those plans, to be a part of those plans, to help bring about the fulfillment of those plans. We've been saved, redeemed from carnage and destruction. The carnage and destruction are rebellious deeds deserve. The fact that we've been saved from that should not make us less obedient. We should look at the horror and that should make us care more 
looking at the hell that we've escaped, the judgment that Jesus that God poured down on Jesus instead of us. The, 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 the excitement that we have that we've escaped his wrath, that should make us care more. Knowing what we've been saved from should make us more diligent, more intent, more determined to fulfill everything that God had in mind, everything that we've been saved to. And so the question that we're left with God's plan is unfolding. Are we participating? Are we cooperating? Are we opposing and rebellion? Lord, help us choose. Help us choose wisely. Help us choose well. And, and God, I say that and, and, and at the same time, what else could you do? How much more clear could you make it? How more vivid a picture of your wrath could you give us? And how much clearer a picture of the cost of our deliverance is there than Jesus, than the cross? And you've given us the bread and the cup. You've, you've given us communion to, 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 to remind our, to use to remind ourselves. As often as you do this, you say, go back to that place and remember again and be horrified all over again and renew your commitment to choose me, to walk with me, to obey me, to love me daily. But Lord, I know I still rebel. And I don't know anyone who doesn't still rebel. So we need that reminder, Lord. We need your long-suffering. We need your patience. We need you to keep pointing us back to Jesus. And we thank you that you do.